So I'm going to start with a distraction, but not really. It kind of weaves in. Yesterday morning, I woke up disturbed because I was thinking about my grandchildren and how it's Easter and, you know, everybody buys bunnies and eggs and all of this stuff. There's so much stuff and they have enough stuff. And I'm like, I don't want to participate in this. I don't want to buy. It's got nothing to do with the holiday, with the Easter holiday. And then from there, I'm like, well, where did that word come from? Where did the word Easter come from? Because I don't ever remember learning about it in my Catholic upbringing. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to start there. Let me look it up. So I look it up, and it's from um, an it was an Anglo-Saxon, it's pre-Christian, Anglo-Saxon goddess named Esther, Estre, something like that. Some, but that's where the word Easter came from. And she was celebrated at the beginning of spring for new life, longer days, and rebirth. And Easter started out as a pagan festival celebrating the spring in the Northern Hemisphere long before the advent of Christianity. So since prehistoric times, people have celebrated the equinoxes and the solstices as sacred times, and that's also a pagan tradition. So the reason for the variation of the day that Easter falls on, this was new to me, is because it's always on the first Sunday after the full moon following the spring equinox. So our Christianity is kind of like part of the pagan tradition, which I thought was very cool. And it, it they, the Christians decided, you know, because Jesus and, and Easter and the uh, resurrection is all about rebirth, so they said, well, we'll just use the same name. We'll use the name that the pagans use. So I thought that was a, a, a great way for me to reconcile. Okay, now I can go out and get Easter eggs and bunnies and explain this to my grandchildren as the beginning of, you know, what paganism is and, and Christianity. I can't, I just didn't feel comfortable, you know, my my stepchildren don't talk about Jesus, so I'm not going to start talking to my grandchildren about Jesus yet, you know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, I shouldn't say yet, I don't know if I ever will, but I feel comfortable talking to them about the equinox and the earth sciences, so that was pretty cool. I felt much better about that. And, and another thing that it taught me or reminded me is when I ask, it is given. When I ask, the answer is always given. So the talk title today is called Celebrating Fulfillment. And I called it this because it's what Jesus did as he entered Jerusalem. You know, the Jews were waiting and expecting a king that would come in peace. And that was only the beginning of the fulfillment journey, as far as I saw. Because I went on to look at the trials and tribulations that Jesus had to experience all week before the crucifixion. So here's the story. Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem, and they stopped at this town called Bethphage. Jesus sent two of the disciples to get a donkey colt. So they were like, a donkey colt? That's what you want? Yep, get me a donkey colt. Now, metaphysically, Bethphage is a place that represents the realization of grace consciousness, that place in us where we're open to all of the blessings that are ours, grace. And Jerusalem is a place that symbolizes perfect peace. The donkey symbolizes humility 
and peace. Now, royalty would ride a donkey when they were in peace times and would ride horses when they were at war. So this went right along, and, and they, Jesus and his apostles, are moving with grace and humility to perfect peace, right? As they leave Bethphage on donkeys coming into Jerusalem. So that's like the metaphysical encapsulation of the whole thing. Then the crowd saw Jesus coming. The people saw they created a crowd and they started covering the road with their garments and with palm so that the donkey could walk on the palm. And the crowd sang, Hosanna, right? And they shouted their praises. The palm leaves are a symbol of grace and victory. Now spiritually, the crowd represents humanity joyously responding to the Christ among them, the highest consciousness within them, the peace that surpasses all understanding. The triumph arrival of the king they had waited for is fulfillment for the Jews. That's what they were celebrating. But as he approached Jerusalem, Jesus wept because he knew. He knew what was about to happen. So Palm Sunday commemorates Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and metaphysically, Palm Sunday is the fulfillment of finding peace from a place of grace. So then I went to the Metaphysical Bible Dictionary, and as I said earlier, Jerusalem is, means peace, but in a human, it is the abiding consciousness of spiritual peace, which is the result of continuous realizations of spiritual power, tempered with spiritual poise and confidence. So think about that as we're entering into things that we might not like or things that we have to do to find that peace within us so that we could do them. Because there are certain things in life that we have to do that we don't necessarily like, but we always have that peace within us so we can look for it. Jesus riding out of Bethphage into Jerusalem signifies the progressive unfoldment of the time when the spiritual I am takes control and lifts all the forces of man into the spiritual plane of mastery, purity, and peace. And Jesus going to Jerusalem is taking the last step of unfoldment in preparation for the final step when the personality is entirely crucified and the Christ consciousness triumphs. That's what the crucifixion is, and we'll talk more about that. But it's a time of transmutation and transformation. One uh, Palm Sunday affirmation could be, I celebrate and welcome the Christ consciousness in me. The Daily, wor the daily Word, Palm Sunday, a year ago, I, I really liked what it said. It said, in embracing his own Christ nature or higher consciousness, the spiritual identity Jesus shared with all people he accepted his greater mission to lead all humankind from all bondage, all limitation, and freedom from death. So by taking inspiration from Jesus' example, we can fearlessly embrace the Christ nature. Guided by the divine presence within, we can follow the path to spiritual freedom and fulfillment. And I just want to say, I know some people are in case you feel uncomfortable with the word Christ. We think it's a consciousness. We don't think it's a person. We're affiliating it with Jesus because he was our role model for that consciousness. But we all have that consciousness. That's the oneness of what we are. That's why I light the candle, 
to remind us of that oneness. So I want to share what I found in the um, Holy Spirit's interpretation of the New Testament for Palm Sunday and Holy Week. And there are many different events that go on, but I picked certain ones that I thought spoke out to me. The first one is in the Gospel according to Matthew. And he says, or, or the Holy Spirit's interpretation of what Matthew said, is that the, go go the donkey is a symbol to say we must put our expectations aside. Expectations are a setup for judgment, which keep us separate from one another. One would not expect a king to ride in on a donkey colt, probably more like a Windsor Gray, which is a big horse that royalties use. But peace comes from laying down our expectations and our judgments and expecting truth as it is. When we meet each other without expectation, we have open hearts to see each other as we are. And when we do that, we can see ourselves as we are. We can love ourselves as we are. The Gospel according to Mark, I looked at some of the events that took place during Holy Week. So the high priest leaders wanted to trap Jesus with his own words so that they could arrest him for breaking the law and discredit him in front of all of those people that were praising him. One of the ways they did this, they asked him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus was very clear. His answer was, God asks one thing of us, to love one another. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Caesar wants your money? But God asks that you love your brother and welcome him into your heart as one with you. And that means welcome Caesar into your heart too, right? And all those people that we don't like. But God asks one thing of you, everything else can go to Caesar. And even at the Last Supper, Jesus reminded the apostles to love one another no matter what, even the ones that betray you. So he was letting them know that he knew Somebody was going to betray him that night. This is fulfillment, living life from that place of love. He reminded the apostles that we are all one with God, one with each other. There is no separation. This physical separation that we see, that we experience because we're all in different bodies, is an illusion. The physical goes away. The spirit is what is left eventually. And once again, we experience that oneness, the truth of who we are. Another question that Jesus was asked by the high priest is, are you the son of God? And he replied, yes, as you are. It was this statement that made the high priest call him blasphemous. And that is when the crowd shouted, crucify him. He knew this was coming and he had a moment of fear when he was in the garden. And he, he asked his father, he asked God. And then God answered him and he knew what his he remembered what his path was, what his purpose was, so he went on. Jesus knew the truth. His mind was full of love, gratitude, peace, and unity. He had moments where he remembered and then forgot and then remembered the truth and who he was and who he came here to be. But he celebrated fulfillment in his life. 
Being crucified wasn't on his mind, or the physical pain of the crucifixion wasn't on his mind most of the time. This was his demonstration to show us that we will have trials and tribulations and how to overcome them. That's what was on his mind, is being the teacher and being the way shower. That how he had to go through these hard times the way we will. He turned down the wine with myrrh in it. Now, together those could have acted or would have acted like a narcotic, a painkiller for him. But he turned it down. He didn't need it because he knew he was not just his body. The perspective of the crucifixion through the lens of the unhealed mind is a perspective of pain and suffering. And for so long, that's how I saw it. It was really hard for me to even read about the crucifixion. The unhealed son of God, which is you and me, cannot imagine the blessings that are upon him, and so he must be taught. Through Jesus' perspective of the event of the crucifixion and his seeming death, Jesus is both the teacher and the learner, that we may all learn the truth. The perspective of the crucifixion through the lens of the unhealed mind is that of being cut off from the mercy of God. The perspective of the healed mind is the joy of knowing itself as one with God, never being separated. The perspective of the unhealed mind is that of bodies, of suffering, of judgment, and of guilt. The perspective of the healed mind is that of peace and gratitude for knowing beyond all possible doubt that illusions are illusions, and only truth is true forever and always. The perspective of the unhealed mind is that of separateness and specialness and that of being apart. The perspective of the healed mind is that of completion and wholly joyous. This is rising above. This is the healed mind. This is fulfillment. In the Gospel according to Luke, I wanted to talk a little bit again about the, the donkey. He says, seeing the king ride in on a donkey, our thoughts do not serve us as reality if we think a king should enter any other way than on a donkey. Again, expectations and judgments are not our friends. And finally, John's perspective. He talks about, really, about what we think about. His perspective on Jesus entering Jerusalem is a triumphant moment and a humble one as it signifies that we must place aside every meaning we thought we knew to be true and to be open to all that we never imagined. For all that we imagined is not true, and the truth is all that we have never imagined. We must ask yourself, myself, what do I desire? And then be aware of what it is I'm thinking about. Because remember, what we think about, we create, right? We must we will see and experience that which we want because it's that which we have chosen to experience. It's that which we are thinking about. Within your mind is a wish. It is protected or denied wish, and yet it is a wish that is deep within us. So where do we find what that wish is? Same place Mary Magdalene told us to look. We go to our heart, our heart's desire. Our heart doesn't lie to us. In trusting your heart, you trust the highest part of yourself. It is the truth of who you are and what you long for. Your heart is your light to your own glory. 
and is inseparable from all that is. The light is in all things, and all things are in the light. It is that same light you imagined when we did our meditation today. Now I'm going to move to the last seven words that Jesus said on the cross. These can be seen as the seven steps that need to be taken in the final overcoming of the mortal mind. Letting go of the physical and fully embracing the spiritual fulfillment. First thing he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was saying this to his persecutors, which revealed his love. Unforgiveness is the most destructive emotion and is based on lack of understanding. Those who are unjust do not know any better, so we need to pray for them and love them. By doing so, this is what hooks me, by doing so, we enter into the kind of forgiveness that cleanses us of injustices we have committed, consciously and unconsciously. I am sure I have committed unjust things unconsciously. And this kind of forgiveness forgives me. We too will be forgiven for those things that we know not that we do. The second thing that Jesus said while he was on the cross is, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was crucified with two other men who were criminals. One of them said, Remember me when you are in your kingdom. And Jesus made him this great promise. So it says to me and it says to us that even the criminals ask and it is given. Why? Because we're all children of God. We may do bad things, but we're not bad people. Whenever we turn to God and ask for help, it is always freely given. Asking is also desiring from the heart. That is why we pray affirmatively. Prayer is to change us, to rise us to the vibration, to receiving what our hearts desire. God has already given it to us. It is us that need to change. When we pray affirmatively and reach the same vibration of what we are desiring from our heart, we shall enter into paradise and feel that peace and feel that fulfillment and that wholeness. The third thing Jesus said was, Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. This one took me a while to understand, but it's Jesus is addressing his words to his mother and his mother Mary and the Apostle John, whom were there, and they caught one another's eyes. He was referring to the natural order of providing for those who have a right to expect provisions from us. Jesus is willingly and lovingly discharging his human responsibility and providing for those who have a right to expect them from him by telling Mary, John is your son. And by telling John, Mary is your mother. This is saying that we are all related. We are all brothers and sisters. We love one another equally. John lived with Mary the rest of her life. John took care of her because Jesus could not. It is a way that we are in service to one another by taking care of one another. So after that third thing that he said, Jesus was on the cross for three more hours in which there was darkness over the land. This is to let us know we will all experience darkness in our lives. He then uttered a cry of desolation 
and physical anguish. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus is expressing the isolation and aloneness he feels. His expression of this releases the aloneness of himself. I don't know about you, but when I'm nervous, if I say I'm nervous, all of a sudden I'm less nervous. If I'm scared and I say I'm scared, all of a sudden I'm less scared. So Jesus was able to say, I feel alone, I feel forsaken, and he wasn't. He remembered. This reminded Jesus he was not alone. When, he, when we experiencing periods of darkness and doubt, we can all remember Jesus passed through a similar period. The challenge is to keep our faith, to know that we are never alone. It may feel like we are, but we are not. God is always with us. God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. And I don't know if you remember from the shack, but Octavia Spencer, right there, she's playing God, and she shows Mac she had the wounds in her hand because she was right there with Jesus when he was being crucified. So God is always with us. The fifth thing he said is, I thirst. I thirst symbolizes Jesus' physical distress of his body. The body is not limited to the physical, though. In spiritual unfoldment, we realize the body is composed of divine substance and activated by divine intelligence. Jesus' voice demand, voiced a demand of his body, but remained faithful. He accepted the act of mercy from the soldier, but as his lips touched the sponge with vinegar, he spoke the words that revealed the heights to which his consciousness had risen. It is finished, he said. That was the sixth thing. It is finished. Jesus knew his work was almost over and God's will will be done. His mission to show the way, the truth, and the life was accomplished. When we keep the faith as we go through a trial, we come to a place of knowing we have done all that we could. And then God is in control. And then the final thing he says is, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. This is the complete surrender to God. Thine will be done. Our will becomes his will, and there is no way to fail. Only victory. The last step in regeneration is the giving up of the thought of corporal experience of the body temple. So what does this all mean? Throughout the whole Bible, we have these great parables and allegories and lessons and stories, but what are they teaching us? Well, Palm Sunday through Holy Week and the last seven words on, on the cross, which lead to the crucifixion. According to the revealing word, crucifixion is the surrender of death of the whole personality in order that the Christ mind, or our highest consciousness, may express its fullness. In Your Hope of Glory by Elizabeth Sand Turner, the crucifixion symbolizes the crossing out of all mortal consciousness in order to make way for the Christ self. The last seven words spoken by Jesus are what we need to do to take the final overcoming of the mortal mind. And it all brings us back to our highest consciousness, rising above it all and accessing that highest consciousness in all we do to experience fulfillment. So put simply, Knowing the Christ in you is awake, alive, enthusiastic to fill its purpose, to fill your purpose on this journey as being human. 
Celebrate and claim this peace that lives within each and every one of us. Go and move mountains by doing what is yours to do. Do it in your way. That is this unique expression of God that you came here to be from that highest consciousness. And when I say move mountains, it doesn't have to be something grand. As Mother Teresa said, do not try to do great things. Just do small things with great love. It is that love that is the Christ in you, the Christ in me. And I promise that love will change your world and will change the world that we live in. I want to say thank you. I'm your sister companion in prayer, possibility, and power. I miss you, I appreciate you, and I love you. Until we meet again, know that you are a blessing, and you are blessed. Mm -hmm.